It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses. And with me now is Element FM's Parliament Hill reporter, Caroline O'Neill, who always has a lot to say and fill us in on all of the comings and goings in Ottawa. Welcome, Caroline. Hi, Kathy. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, always a lot going on. I wanted to ask you about Senator Lynn Bayak. Now, she was suspended for making racist remarks. She went through cultural sensitivity training. I believe it was her third time through. Finally passed it. And now a coalition of First Nations chiefs and residential school survivors are rejecting the new recommendations to lift Lynn Bayak's suspension from the Senate. What, What do you know? Right. So this has really been an ongoing saga with Lynn, Be- with Lynn Bayek. I think this has been happening essentially since the radio station started. But like you said, an ethics committee is recommending now that Bayek's suspension be lifted because she did take anti-racism training. However, a coalition of Indigenous chiefs and residential school survivors have rejected the recommendation. But not only, Kathy, have they rejected the recommendation, they've also taken it a lot further. They say at this point they do not accept her apology, and they're also saying that she needs to resign. So this is a pretty strong statement. Well, wasn't there a member of a First Nation on the committee that passed her this past time? So that's where things do get a little tricky because there are Indigenous senators and they do sit on different committees and there could be kind of different things going on behind the scenes. But what I find really interesting is that, as you mentioned, she has undergone Indigenous cultural competency training before, and I think it's fair to say it hasn't gone well. But this time it was virtual. But the real point of contention is that it didn't include any input from Indigenous peoples who are from her area. She's from Northwestern Ontario, and it didn't include any input from residential school survivors. And that's really the point of contention, because a lot of the allegations of racism that she's facing has to do with comments she's made about residential schools. So what happens now? That is a really great question. It's really hard for a senator to be thrown out of Senate. Essentially, it's it's very easy to stay a senator, I think, perhaps, is a better way to do it. Like, I think one of the few ways that you could lose a position as a senator, for instance, would be if you become insolvent. That would be one way. But, you know, people are calling for her to resign. I don't necessarily know that she will. She has been at the center of this firestorm for quite some time, fielding media calls, fielding these allegations of racism, and she hasn't seemed to want to leave then, so I don't necessarily know if she will. Now, the one difference is that she has apologized for posting derogatory letters about Indigenous people, so this was when she was essentially funding and looking for people who would have something to say that aligned with her views and posted on her website, which she didn't take down. She originally doubled down on that, so I think that's the one change, but essentially a lot might not happen now. Yeah, one wonders what's going on in her mind. Why is she being so stubborn about this? That's what I get. I mean, well, and I think a lot of people do really want to know why this is something you would dig into, especially when you have Indigenous colleagues who have been so vocal about racism in Canada and especially racism toward Indigenous peoples. I also think, you know, it was one thing that she's been stubborn for essentially two years, but now she's being stubborn amidst a global crisis about racism and systemic racism, but also a global conversation about how do we move forward. So I think if people were looking at that more at the large scale, many would argue that institutions like the Senate do propagate systemic racism, and they certainly do when they allow somebody like Lynn Bayek to stay. Can a senator be fired? 
Essentially, you can't be fired there. I mean, there are very specific issues, like I said, if you were to become insolvent, but it's pretty easy to stay a senator. You know, I think one would argue that if she was going to be fired, she would have already been, but she hasn't been. Okay, well, staying in this Indigenous space for now, the government says it's working toward a new legislative framework to improve the relationship between police and Indigenous people. And Public Safety Minister Bill Blair has a lot to say about that. What can you tell us? You know, he does have a lot to say, and obviously somebody like Bill Blair would have a large stake in the game because he had a full career in policing. But basically, he says that it is time for First Nations policing to become considered an essential service. He is not the first person to say that. I think it's really important to note that Indigenous leaders have been advocating for this for years. Again, I do think the global conversations that have then led to more of a scrutiny on Canada's policing practices have led have really led to this moment, because I don't necessarily think Bill Blair would be someone to speak in a way that comes out against the police, but he says that they should co-develop a legislative framework that recognizes Indigenous policing as an essential service. That's really interesting because in, uh, policing on First Nations is not under provincial, under the same provincial rules as the rest of the police forces. And just recently on Six Nations, there were a couple of young people who put forth this argument of who's going to police the police on First Nations. I think this really does kind of look at this broader question, right? What we're learning is how complex these systems are and how difficult it can be to untangle systemic racism from within these systems. I also think it really looks at a lot of different questions, right? So first of all, um, like you said, there is that accountability factor, right? People will still be questioning, well, what if there were issues with a policing service there? The other thing that I think is interesting, right, is you mentioned that a First Nations policing service has its own kind of regulatory body, but it's interesting, again, that the word that's been used is co-develop a legislative framework, right? So I think for a lot of policy wonks, then the question is, well, if we're co-developing, what role does the federal government play or what role would provincial governments play, if at all? Okay, and moving on from that, we have the new NAFTA went into effect, but it seemed to just fly under the radar. You know, 2020, I think, has been one heck of a year. So I remember that the USMCA or CUSMA, depending on who you are, I guess, if semantics are your thing, um, was one of the biggest stories. And given COVID-19 and given systemic racism and given all of these other massive stories, yeah, this just kind of seemed to be like a very minor story in comparison. But I do think in many ways, this is very much the story of our current economy, which can only be tied back to COVID-19. Yes. Now, speaking of economy... Before COVID-19 hit, we had all of the protests against Trans Mountain Pipeline, which was affecting our economy. And on top of that, then we have COVID. So it's going to be interesting how we come out the other side of all this. That's right. So Statistics Canada actually said, um, it released a report earlier this week saying that April had a historic low and there was a real drop in our gross domestic product. But it did say that you do see those numbers start to turn around in May. But March and April have really had some staggering numbers in our nation's history. They sure have. And now the First Nations are trying to appeal the Trans Mountain Pipeline again. And just recently, the government said no. Right. So the Supreme Court of Canada did turn down that appeal, which was some big news coming out of earlier last week. 
But one of the things that I think is really interesting that often comes along with the Supreme Court of Canada ruling is that they don't explain why. So I think there are lots of people who have some questions, but those questions aren't necessarily going to be answered by anybody sitting on the bench. Well, what else is happening up on Parliament Hill? When do the politicians go on break? So technically, the politicians are on break now. The House of Commons did wrap up in the summer um, in June. However, they will be reconvening for different uh, for about four one day sittings throughout this summer. Now, I guess one would technically make the argument that a good member of parliament should never be on vacation. That's why some people argue there shouldn't be lifetime politicians. Um, and that's because you do have to go back to your home riding, right? So you spend so much time here in Ottawa, so much time on the hill that it's also really important that it's balanced out by the time that you do spend in your riding. And that doesn't just mean at home or at the cottage, right? That means going into the different communities that make up your riding and seeing how people are doing. And I would say, Kathy, that actually the summer season is probably the month to do that. You know, you have things like farmer's markets. If you're in maybe some more rural areas, you would have things like different festivals. You would have powwows to go to. And those are all really great ways to get face time with your constituents. But all of that's been taken away, right? I mean, you could still go to a farmer's market, but you're not necessarily going to sit and have those close conversations right now. And especially if you're a politician, right? You are also supposed to be role modeling the appropriate behavior during the pandemic. Absolutely. Well, some of the farmer's markets are reopening around the Toronto area. And yeah, and there are some reopening here, but I still think it would be hard to maybe like have a coffee and have a chat. Exactly. Maybe you could go in with a mask on. Maybe you could. One thing we've actually seen some of our city councillors do here in Ottawa is that they've offered virtual coffee hours and they ask everybody to pour a cup of their own favorite local brew and chat that way. And again, we do know that Zoom can hold up to 100 people. So it could be an interesting way for members of parliament to still get that FaceTime. Yeah, it's a good idea. Very good idea. Well, what's going to happen with all of our COVID updates if everyone's on vacation? You know, again, I don't think everyone is necessarily on vacation, but that is something that we've heard the Prime Minister won't be um, offering these daily updates anymore. So we do have things like all of the reporting databases. So you could head over to the Ontario's website a few times a day and you could get an update there. You could do things federally. And we will hear from people when we need to. So somebody like, you know, Dr. Theresa Tam, she's not an elected member of parliament or an elected official. So she's not on vacation. Or in your different public health units, right? Your top doctors for your city or for the province aren't on vacation either. So they will still be checking in and it will really still be on our elected officials to make themselves public. So if somebody say sits on a health committee or sits on the COVID-19 rapid response committee, they still need to be monitoring that. And it's also worth noting that several members of parliament are also alternates for that committee. So they'll be monitoring those things too. A vacation. Vacation would be nice. <laughs> I think a lot of people argue that vacation would be nice. Now here in Ontario, we've really been encouraged by tourism minister Lisa McLeod to have more of a staycation. So I think that's something lots of people will be looking to. But in my opinion, I do think that a member of parliament who's really into the work wouldn't necessarily be on vacation right now. Maybe they take a few weeks, but I think summer is definitely the time that you reconnect with your constituency. Okay. And speaking of vacation, you're going to be using some of your vacation to set up a new course for Carleton University. What's happening? Yeah, that's right. So I'm going to be teaching at Carleton University School of Journalism and Communications. A few years ago, they launched a new program called the Bachelor of Media Production and Design, and I will be teaching a course on social media and storytelling and how the two really do come together to create a compelling narrative. That's pretty exciting, Caroline. And thank you. You're going to be launching the inaugural course. That's right, in 2021. 
so, so exciting. Thank you, well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you, Caroline. Thank you. And we'll be back in a little bit where we'll be chatting with Jenny Sivaraj, Darby McGrath, and Ryan Plummer all about green spaces and how urban areas can implement green spaces in a post-COVID-19 world. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. This is Moment of Truth with David Moses. I'm Caroline O'Neill filling in today from our Ottawa station while David Moses is off. And today we are here to talk about green spaces. And joining me, I have Jenny Sivaraj, Darby McGrath, and Ryan Plummer all here to talk about the importance of green spaces and how we move forward in a post-pandemic world. Now together, they have authored how cities can add accessible green space in a post-coronavirus world for the conversation. Thank you all for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us, yes. Now, Darby, Ryan, and Jenny, I wanted to start things off with the importance of green spaces, specifically in urban areas. What is it that they bring to cities? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, what what the coronavirus has sort of highlighted is that they bring a lot of things that maybe we didn't always typically acknowledge green spaces for. It's sort of amplified um, a need that everyone has for green space. So certainly there's, you know, the outdoor recreation aspects that, you know, we typically think of green space for. Um, but during this, you know, the, the lockdown where we had parks where people couldn't access them or, you know, very brief, brief interludes in parks, I think there has been a lot of other um, you know, mental health and psychological uh, benefits that people have really been acknowledging them for. Um, so those are the things that, you know, have always been been there, but maybe we're just really starting to um, recognize that inherent value and really giving, uh, you know, credit where credit is due to green space. Now, even though people definitely are appreciating green spaces and they are taking the time to get out and get active, there's also the worry about spreading COVID-19. So I was wondering if you could address a little bit about that kind of tension of wanting to get outside and be healthy and experience those mental health benefits, but also the fear of spreading a pandemic that we're still trying to understand. Sure, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to jump in on that question. Um, you know, one of the things that's been a, a real challenge is trying to um, gain information uh, and, and gain information quickly that's empirically based or factually based on, on how COVID spreads and, and trying to understand it in all the different situations that we face. And so, you know, to date, we've got, uh, you know, increasing amounts of, of evidence about how it's spread. Um, but a lot of that information is in indoor environments. And so, you know, there's, there's a couple pieces of uh, information and studies now that have been uh, collected on, on outdoor spaces. And increasingly, we're looking towards or understanding that, you know, again, social distancing and, and masks, uh, as we're seeing amplified uh, recently in, in the news, um, are, you know, two of the best strategies. And, of course, one of the reasons early on that, that there was such a closure around uh, parks and green spaces uh, is that people simply, um, you know, get close and, and can't physically distance and that increases the likelihood of transmission. And so we, we've seen uh, municipalities and other agencies have to make really difficult decisions about all those benefits that Darby was just talking about uh, versus a potential of, of you know, um, 
potential of, of community spread uh, of COVID. And of course, as we've seen, there's several examples now in Canada and, and elsewhere um, where that, that spread is increasing and those decisions and trade-offs continually have to be made. Um, yeah. I think one of the most well-known examples of the fear of spreading COVID-19 in a green space was what happened with Trinity Bellwoods when the nice weather started to kick in. And it started a really interesting discourse where some people felt that people were being inappropriate, making use of the space, but then other people pointed out that it does highlight social inequities because not everybody maybe has access to things like air conditioning or a backyard. So I was wondering, Jenny Darby and Ryan, if you could share a little bit your take on what happened at Trinity Bellwoods. So I could jump in because I'm originally from Toronto. So what I work quite a bit with the city of Toronto and what they do, uh, what we have is even though Canada is such a large mass area and they're still accessible, I mean, there's still green space available for everyone in the city, but those green spaces are concentrated in ravines and other areas that are sort of outside of the immediate downtown core. So for example, if you're walking by Toronto, there's not much green space available for the people that are actually living there and they're not as accessible. So what happened at Trinity Bellwoods is a classic example where there's just a lot more population density aggregated in a smaller area. And I'm not saying what they did, I'm not supporting what they did was uh, correct, but at the same time, these spaces are so limited. So therefore, these are their refuge areas to go in. One of the things, oh, go ahead, Ryan. Sorry, Carolyn, I was just going to add one other thing. I mean, there's some fascinating work which we actually incorporated and the timing was perfect just when our our piece came out with the the work that's been done um, from folks in Toronto where they actually, you know, looked at uh, the distance that would be required to observe safe social distancing guidelines and how many uh, census tracts in Toronto with their current green space would actually meet those. And uh, what, what we see, uh, you know, from those types of analyses is that, um, you know, you can't look at the average amount of green space that's available in a population. When you start applying things like social distancing, it really highlights it, that there are large sections of, of cities uh, where we can't adequately social distance, even if people did their very best, uh, we simply don't have enough green space. So, you know, there's some really fascinating uh, research being done right now to, that illustrates if we add in those social distancing requirements, the, uh, the inequity of green space in several locations. Now, this is going back to something that Ryan said, but again, this is open to everyone. Ryan, you mentioned that it's often the public health officials who do have to make the heartbreaking decisions about shutting things down. But It is also interesting because people make a choice to go to a green space or to a beach and they make a choice to stay even if it is packed. We are hearing reports here in Ottawa that a popular beach called Mooney's Bay Beach had tons of people yesterday. So for the average person going to the park or to the beach, how do you make that call? Yeah, I think I think that's really challenging right now. And I mean, certainly um, as the weather gets better, this is this is going to be a challenge for everyone, um, you know, wanting to get their family outside and to be to be spending that time out uh, in those areas and and where there are those limitations I think um, you know people are obligated to to make those socially responsible choices and that that's going to be 
that's only going to be exacerbated as the summer goes on, I think. And certainly, you know, the point that you made, Carolyn, about, um, you know, not having air conditioning in, in people's homes and things like that, like this is really going to push people um, out into those those public areas. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really tough call because I think that, um, I don't think that there is an easy solution for people when we have these limitations on, you know, we have a fixed boundary of green space for a lot of, a lot of cities in Canada and being able to, um, you know, give your, your family or, you know, people that you want to, you know, spend time with um, outside, like having those times together is, is going to be important for mental health as well. So um, yeah, I wish, I wish I had an easy answer there, but I think it's, it's something that will continue to be, um, to be challenged throughout the summer. And I would just, I would just add there that, I mean, our, you know, from a, a social science perspective, our policy mechanisms um, to influence or shape, um, you know, individual choice and behavior, uh, you know, those are, are also being challenged. So for example, um, you know, Grand Bend uh, recently, I believe they had 250 bylaw infractions uh, you know, because on the beach, um, individuals, you know, trying to get outside and enjoy the summer, um, and they're going to now have to make a hard choice whether they they shut the beach entirely and cut off access. Uh, Wayne Fleet, where I'm coming to you from, a small part of Niagara, um, we've recently had challenges here where where folks are parking on the road and calling, causing all kinds of other safety risks in addition to uh, the spread of COVID trying to access the beach and in this the township here has increased their fines um, you know trying to make it safe for the public so it is a really challenging public policy uh, discourse and decision um, that I think is going to only intensify going forward. We know that there really aren't a lot of easy answers when it does come to this topic, but one small step we've seen are some places have started to implement social distancing circles. So again, for instance, that's present over at Trinity Bellwoods Park, as well as here in Ottawa at the Mooney's Bay Beach. I'm curious to get your take on social distancing circles. Okay, so these circles are obviously some necessary um, necessary uh, things that have to put in, in place to show people what the social distancing actually mean. And I feel like these circles do help people sort of remain in their little um, pouch or their little space. And they're still are available to enjoy the green space and get to have their family gatherings while abiding by these social distancing rules. I mean, it's, it's definitely not that like attractive, but it is definitely doing the job. So I, in my opinion, it, it is kind of good to have these kind of circles or some, some sort of like arbitrary signs so that people are aware that these are still in effect and they are still, uh, and they're still be able to gain the benefits that the green space and trees do provide them. Genity, these are piloted in a few cities right now. Do you think that these should be more of a standard practice across the province? I, I can't comment on that because I'm not a planner, but uh, in terms of, I'm not a public health official as well, but in terms of uh, public health measures that I'm seeing, I do see that there is uh, quite a bit of progress. And I, I, when I do pass by Trinity Bellwoods now, I do see people abide by, abiding by the rules, but while still enjoying these green space and green uh, benefits. So 
I, I mean, it could potentially work to help the situation in stopping the tra uh, transmission of COVID and uh, uh, giving people uh, what, what social distancing means. So it, it does help the situation, in my opinion. Yeah, and just to, to jump in there, like uh, as a mother of, of two young children, you know, under six, you know, trying to present, uh, you know, the, the social distancing bubble concept to kids is, is very challenging. And so I think, you know, for anyone that's trying to take their children outside, as, as Janani said, it's, you know, maybe not the most attractive way to, to lay it out. But for, a, for, for my children, I think something like that would be very effective because we're, you know, we're always trying to explain this concept of six feet or, you know, some kind of arbitrary measure to like a three-year-old, like a bubble, the circle drawn can, I think, be very effective, especially if, you know, people are trying to take young families out and, and explain what that means, like giving other people their space as well. In the conversation piece, you all write that green spaces are important always, and while we might be appreciating them all the more during COVID-19, they have lots of different positive impacts. And one of the things that you talk about is the impact green spaces have on climate change in urban areas. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about the impacts that they do have. So urban spaces and trees, like some of my own research looked at, like heat uh, mitigation and UV uh, protection under trees. So they, they offer like physical health benefits. But what's very integral that the piece kind of talked about is using like an ecosystem based approach, uh, which is kind of relatively new in terms of thinking about it in urban forest management concept. So unlike more like conventional approaches with which have like more concentrated effort on green infrastructure, gray infrastructure, I mean, like buildings and concrete floors and infusing it with like green vegetation. What this strategy really looks at is thinking about planning has an integrated approach. So th uh, thinking about land, water, living and non-living organisms together and focus on the processes or the function or the interaction among these organisms and the environment. So in this case, what we're saying is that we have to think about humans uh, as part of the puzzle and they are just as important uh, part of ecosystems uh, or the urban ecosystem. So when you're thinking about it uh, from a much more integral part, like has a whole unit, and you're thinking about all the functions and the processes within that system, we are more likely to evolve an ecosystem or an urban ecosystem that's more likely to withstand any extreme temperature conditions or air pollution or climate change effects. So we could bounce back and still be able to thrive uh, with, uh, with all the increasing challenges that we will be facing in the near future. The title of this piece is How Cities Can Add Accessible Green Space in a Post-Coronavirus World. So I'd like to put out the question to you all, how can cities do that? Sure, I can jump in uh, and at least start to tackle this uh, question because it's certainly something that I think is, you know, it, we're only at the, the start of this this conversation certainly and I think the the first thing that cities are are really going to have to do is to start to understand um, you know how much green space they have right now so thinking you know across the entire uh, city like what is the the footprint of that space and then certainly you know we, we talk a little bit about some examples um, in the Netherlands where you know they're looking at that green space um, not just in terms of you know, the footprint, but also in terms of its accessibility. So, you know, examples where they're looking at what, what is the green space per household, certainly, but 
how easy is it to access that green space from where you are uh, within the city? So at any given point, you know, thinking about the equity for people to be able to access that. So it's not just, you know, if someone has um, their own vehicle or, you know, it's only accessible by public transport because that's been challenging as well um, as public transit was certainly um, an area where, you know, we certainly don't have a lot of folks trying to use that right now, um, or at least at the beginning of the lockdown. So I think for cities to start um, understanding where they are in terms of green space and their projected uh, population density, um, you can really start to set targets around where you can go from there. So understanding where those inequities are um, is, is really an important first step. And maybe the second step to add on to what Darby said is to think about uh, what we talked about in our, our article is think about different radical approaches to planning. So like really looking at below ground infrastructure. So that includes the soil and improving the soil conditions to be able to withstand uh, tree growth and canopy growth in the cities and to support different ecosystem uh, 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 systems within the city as a uh, for example, like for example, Toronto have their biodiversity strategy, which focuses on uh, increasing biodiversity in the cities, which or the pockets uh, within the cities to uh, withstand climate change and other global environmental challenges that we may be facing uh, in the near future. So really thinking about different approaches than just incrementally adding green space within cities, but thinking about how we can maintain these trees and maintain these green space and biodiversity over time. So like looking at other ecosystem-based planning for in cities. So that's another second step that cities could go towards. One of the examples Darby cited was in the Netherlands, where you write about a city that is described as an example of a resilience nexus that does occur when you can support climate change adoption and have a healthy, livable urban environment. From that specific case study, is there anything you would like to see be implemented in Canadian cities? Sure, I can jump in here. Um, yeah, I think I think that one of the things that you know we see in the European uh, countries where they they're doing this they're taking this kind of ecosystem approach is that it does really consider um, ecosystem services uh, you know as part of the primary planning process so that's something we talk about um, and and Janani had just given a really good example of is to think about you know when we're laying out cities when you have the opportunity to do some kind of um, new design or you have new developments that are cropping up is to to have some kind of green infrastructure plan um, that is incorporated at the very beginning so you know we I think we use the phrase they think about ecosystems services first and often and and that really is the case and that's where the efficacy comes in because once they have set those planning targets around green infrastructure they're now benchmarking against them and that's something um, that is you know it's it's rolling all the way up to certainly at the, their federal level and then across uh, the EU in general they're looking at how they can they can add this green space in and then they're certainly looking at critical milestones to see if they're actually reaching those targets or not. In the current space that we're in I've noticed a lot of the public have been very action oriented so for people who do care about the future of green spaces in their city what are some first steps that they could take right now? I think that's a great, uh, a great point. Thank you. Um, I mean, much of what 
we're faced with and really when we when in the paper we were writing about you know an incremental approach we've come to the realization that a number of our cities um, you know don't have the amount of public green space or don't have the resources uh, of our public agencies to do all of this by themselves and so getting citizens involved getting um, non-governmental organizations involved and in using or or involving actively um, various people in the stewardship of green space is going to be absolutely critical. Um, so that can be something as simple as, you know, thinking about your own property, your own backyard. Um, if you're a, a resident and a homeowner, uh, that can be community gardens, for example, uh, and, and what they can contribute um, could be businesses and, and doing hard and softscaping, uh, thinking about, you know, blue infrastructure or water reuse. Um, all, all different approaches or collaborating around ecosystem restoration in public places. Um, so there's a number of, a number of things uh, that people can do to become stewards of, of green space in cities. And only by collaborating together uh, can we actually start hitting some of those targets to make uh, you know, demonstrable changes to moving forward. I'd like to end things on more of a personal note. You've mentioned in your piece and both here with me today about how much green spaces do matter to people. So I'm curious, what are some of the positive benefits that you experience when you access your own green spaces? So for example, like when I'm working in my little four walled uh, office working from home, I really like sitting out on the porch or in the backyard and I feel the change of scenery and the change of space actually makes me concentrate better. And even uh, studies have shown that people are feel better, they actually connect better uh, when they have trees or exposure to trees. Children actually perform uh, academically well when they're exposed to tree vegetation. This is, a, this is a paper that I wrote and with the Toronto District School Board. So, and there's multiple uh, stories out there and research out there that shows that green vegetation allows people to be more active in their neighborhoods or even reduces uh, crime rates in their local neighborhoods. So there's a lot of potential benefits to increasing tree canopy, uh, not, just, uh, not just in terms of battling climate change. It promotes a lot of social benefits and a lot of health benefits along with that. And this is by, again, a lot of researchers out there have said the same message over and over again. It's, and cities have recognized this and are promoting a tree vegetation on grounds, but it's about maintaining this over time. And that's what we really sort of talked about in our article is uh, thinking about different radical approaches to really uh, uh, allow these green spaces to strive and do well in an urban ecosystem. Carolyn, I guess I'll go next. Thanks for that uh, personal question. And I guess for myself, um, you know, this entire area of research about uh, social ecological systems and stewardship uh, is ex intensely personal. Um, we have a 100-acre managed forest, my wife and I, and, um, you know, planting trees, restoring uh, ecosystem, uh, aspects of the ecosystem, and essentially creating habitat, uh, you know, and, and seeing that in a very tangible way, getting, getting your hands dirty, um, you know, is is just so rewarding, and and personally, I find it uh, a re relaxing way to recharge, uh, and very different than you know the academic life. 
uh, within the institution, but uh, extremely rewarding to uh, to be part and actually feel like I'm a, a steward contributing. So, um, yeah, for me, it's just a, a wellness uh, relaxation and, and doing my own little part uh, for ecosystem services. Yeah, and just sorry to uh, to echo what Ryan said. I mean, it's it's not by accident. I think that any of us are are you know studying these concepts and. For me, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lifelong passion, certainly, and I'm just one of those people that, you know, lucked out to get to have a career in, in the things that I really care about. So, you know, right now, um, certainly the, the pandemic has highlighted my reliance on green space for my own um, well-being and, and mental health. And like I mentioned before, I have two young children, and, and that has been our refuge right now. Like the homeschooling thing has been a challenge, I think, for everyone. And for me, it was, I, you know, I used to teach ecology field courses and stuff. So this has been the way that I've been educating my children during this, uh, you know, this sort of hiatus from school is, you know, teach what you know. So I think that, um, as I say, this is, you know, it's not by accident that this is the, the world that I work in. And I, I just, I feel lucky every day that I get to uh, hopefully see the, the things that I work on go out into the world and become solutions. Jenny, Darby, and Ryan, I would like to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. You're welcome. Jenny, Saravaja, Darby, McGrath, and Ryan Plummer are co-authors of a Piece for the conversation called How Cities Can Add Accessible Green Space in a Post-Coronavirus World. This is Moment of Truth with David Moses. I'm filling in today for David. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Element FM, this is Moment of Truth with David Moses. I'm Caroline O'Neill filling in for David today. And today we are talking about Zoom bombing. And joining us on the line, we have Anthony Burton and Stephen Neville, who are both from York University. Anthony Burton is a master's candidate studying critical theory cultural studies at York University. And then also joining us is Stephen Neville, who's a PhD student at the Communications and Culture at York. Stephen and Anthony, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Now, a lot of people have been hosting Zoom meetings only to find themselves in a pretty horrifying situation when they've been Zoom bombed. And I think a lot of people associate this with photo bombing, but this is definitely no joke. So I thought we could start off by having you explain to us what exactly Zoom bombing is. Yeah, absolutely. So Zoom bombing is a practice where individuals or groups of people, they infiltrate an online meeting held on Zoom in order to cause some kind of disruption or to um, deliberately target and attack the meeting participants. So, as you said, it's um, the term comes from photobombing. But yeah, there are some definite differences. Um, photobombing is much more spontaneous and playful, um, as we think of it now. But Zoom bombing, from our research, we find that it's, um, to a great extent, a very coordinated and often a kind of a communal practice. There's a lot of um, kind of subcultural discussion happening online in different corners on the internet that are carrying out these attacks. I think the question that a lot of people have is that, you know, we're in the middle of this global pandemic. Things are hard enough already. Why would someone decide to Zoom bomb on top of all of this when people are just trying to get by? 
Yeah, there are all sorts of all sorts of things. And Anthony, feel free to jump in. But we have um, looked for what the motivations are for these uh, these Zoom moms, and to an extent, it's just for a a laugh. It's a typical prank. Um, a great deal of the perpetrators are kind of youthful, um, high school aged boys or young young men um, who are just trying to um, provoke someone to uh, get a laugh out of it. But in other cases, there are more malicious cases where um, there's a clear intention to provoke uh, marginalized groups. So that's been quite a bit of the media attention around this is um, folks who are already um, marginalized in our communities being attacked online. So things like uh, Holocaust memorial service was attacked uh, with anti-Semitic slurs. Um, um, African-American teachers have been attacked with uh, black racism. Um, Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous meetings have been attacked where people kind of ridicule the addiction and recovery issues they face. So these are kind of the the different motivations in um, why someone's carrying out these attacks. Um, A lot of it also has to do with finding new ways to um, for these attackers to entertain themselves because like most people, they also are cooped up at home feeling probably quite bored and isolated. And they're using this as an opportunity to connect with different online trolls to uh, attack these, these victims. Yeah. I think the, like with you saying, bring up the trolling there, like that trolling has like, as a sort of just the practice of, for lack of a better term, messing with people and just causing disruption for the sake of it. Um, you know, it's had all these different manifestations since the since we've all been networked. And it's um, the sort of the entertainment aspect of this is really just, you know, you don't really have like a face or a name to the victim. They're really just the, like the meeting to Zoom code. Um, and it's just, yeah, kind of a boredom thing uh, where... Um, it falls within the tradition of just trolling for the sake of just causing disruption in that sense. So yeah, we end up, uh, we end up finding that a lot of these targeted communities, uh, are disadvantaged for whatever particular reason, as Steve mentioned. Um, and, uh, yeah, it just sort of extends from the propensity to troll as a way of just sort of entertaining oneself in the face of, you know, we are all online. There are targets available on this sort of new realm of uh, of Zoom meetings uh, that someone happens to be able to jump in on. Anthony and Stephen, you were both co-authors on a piece in the conversation that looked at the fact that, as you both mentioned, a lot of these impact marginalized communities, especially through racist and misogynist attacks. And we are in the middle of Black Lives Matter movement that has really sparked a movement across the world. I'm wondering, have you noticed kind of more of these attacks happening happening in light of what's been going on with Black Lives Matter? Um, not really, to be honest. Um, the phenomenon is, in some senses, over. Um, not entirely, but um, since uh, March 30th, the FBI released a statement kind of declaring that Zoom bombing uh, was a cybercrime. So they started prosecuting people. So people got quite afraid of this, and uh, the reports of these attacks have subsided. So we aren't um, seeing many cases of new Zoom bombs happening today. Um, they're likely still going on, but they're not 
um, highly prominent, and people are quite cautious in that regard. But um, Zoom bombing is very much still alive if you go to entertainment platforms such as YouTube or TikTok. Um, YouTube is one of our data sets, and you still have uh, compilation videos of Zoom bombs circulating on YouTube. So what those are, just the, the um, I'll use scare quotes here, the funniest moments of Zoom bombs, where someone's assembled their favorite cases of this, right? So these compilation videos, you can still view them today. Um, and people are still kind of getting entertainment out of these videos. And there are many cases of black racism on these uh, YouTube compilations. Uh, some of them are just typical racial slurs, but there are other cases where um, the attacker takes control of the um, basically the whiteboard function on Zoom, where a teacher might be using a whiteboard function for a lesson. Uh, the perpetrator takes control of that, and I've seen cases of someone drawing a, um, a, a black man being shot by a cop. So certainly speaking to that, that uh, racist trope. Um, yeah, I, I think it's essentially like there, we didn't really see Zoom bomb. We didn't really find any instances of Zoom bombing as like um, a coordinated political response to anything. What again ends up happening is just sort of the provocation um, by jumping onto these sort of uh, mainstream narratives of um, of like marginalization and things like that in order to provoke people. But yeah, there's no sense there. We I, we didn't really find any uh, cases of um, coordinating against a larger political movement. And then obviously the yeah the timeline that Stephen mentioned, um, it's uh, it's sort of subsided the the bulk of it subsided with the FBI announcement alongside uh, Zoom uh, enabling host, uh, host waiting rooms by default and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, there has, it doesn't really line up with, um, with the mainstream, uh, with mainstream political conversations in that regard. It does sort of fall back onto the trolling provocation and things like that. And trolling, I think, is something that is certainly not new to people or new with Zoom. But what I think a lot of people are finding interesting was that the FBI acted on this fairly quickly. But people point out that on other online platforms, that doesn't seem to be the case. Do you think this could set a precedent for how other social media platforms handle things like trolling online? Yeah, I think it's, it's tricky. I think it was certainly uh, the quick response was due to COVID-19. There was a lot of... Um, insecurity already with people having to work from home, uh, remote learning, the economy coming to a, a halt effectively. So I think there was a, a quick response because of that. Um, I'm, I'm hesitant that uh, the quick response was because of some kind of social justice orientation on the FBI, although it may have been a, a factor. In, in the in the media attention that provoked their response, I, I'm skeptical that that was really um, uh, kind of the, the main reason why. I think they were trying to uh, prevent further economic disruption um, and political chaos that this was kind of creating. Um, so I, I'm 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 not overly optimistic. This is kind of going to be um, a sign for uh, future intervention on a much um, more. Um, uh, I guess, balanced uh, pace. Yeah, and I think too, like you have to also sort of look at um, 
what these plat like when we're when we're asking questions of platform governance and things like that like we have to look at what these platforms sort of want and like what their um what they're sort of like uh essentially what their business models are founded off of and um a lot of the instances or actually to start with zoom you know zoom does not want to be associated they want to be the platform wherein the social practices that are unavailable due to um the coronavirus are um, they want to be the replacement for those social practices whereas a lot of these other platforms where hate speech is rampant and um, we have these histories of uh, problematic uh, engagement with them um, they've been they've been in discussions with uh, they've been mired in these discussions for years now we obviously see that uh, Facebook Google and YouTube are all very focused on um, mitigating uh, COVID-19 misinformation um whether that's a response to um the increased lens on um on sort of far-right extremist politics that uh really sort of came to the forefront last year like we can only speculate um but i think it, it does sort of come down. yeah i'm i'm with steve in that um i'm not necessarily uh optimistic that this is pointing to a sea change because it does require a lot of coordination and cooperation on the part of the um on the part of the infrastructures administrators, essentially. Something that both Stephen and Anthony, you have mentioned is that it was overwhelmingly male high school students. And obviously we do mention what the FBI said, but I also bearing in mind that the school year is done. I'm wondering if you're looking ahead to the fall as this does highlight a bit of a tech generational divide. Is there anything that you'll be watching for when school starts again, if schools are depending more on resources like Zoom? I was just going to say, yeah, like, it, like as a... I think Zoom bombing is sort of like in the in the macro sense, it's sort of indicated, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the the speed and and rapidity that um, all these social practices had to migrate to online um, sort of meant that you know there were cases where um, the platforms and infrastructure we weren't necessarily prepared to um, properly um, set up proper security protocols and things like that for the platforms and infrastructures that we were using. I think of that, I mean, again, we see the degrees of change that have occurred already um, in people's using of Zoom and other online meeting platforms. Some people are meeting, moving to things like Jitsi. Some people are, um, you know, uh, strengthening security protocols on their Zoom meetings. Um, so as for the fall, I think it will be interesting to uh, look to see whether, again, as, like as uh, you brought up the um, it's summer now, so there just there simply won't be as many meetings to bomb. Um, but is this a time wherein uh, wherein organizations that are using these um, using these infrastructures is the time that they're going to sort of uh, strengthen and prioritize the security of these infrastructures? Is this sort of a uh, one-off phenomenon where people lose interest in trolling through this method? Um, I guess those are the open questions, in in my opinion. Yeah, just a small point to add to that as well. I think as we kind of get better at um, life with COVID-19, we will, of course, adapt um, online as we, as we need to. So as we adapt, I guess one thing we will look for is in, um, if how trolls kind of follow suit. You know, if, if we migrate to different platforms and if we uh, add some different, add some more um, 
updated security protocols, how will, how will trolls manage to um, adapt to that and find new ways to infiltrate, not only on Zoom, but on different platforms. So that'll be a, a question uh, we'll pose in the fall for sure. And I think speaking to that adoption piece, is there anything that you think school boards and post-secondary institutions especially need to be doing or having in mind as they move forward to a semester that really looks like it will be part on in person? Yeah, I think basic training for all educators is, is quite important. Um, there's been a, a lot of that um, already happening. Um, you know, it's tricky for educators because um, they not only have to maintain students' engagement on these online platforms, which is quite difficult in comparison with in-person uh, settings. But they also have to manage this, uh, this threat, these, these, these cyber threats, right? So that's, that's tricky to not only learn to engage your classroom, but also um, receive that basic training into how to uh, um, best pr uh, protect yourself and your students. Yeah, and I think the only thing that I would add to that, and this sort of uh, goes back to the last question that you asked as well, um, is that as the the sort of the the ethos of um, this, like taking advantage of sort of gaps in uh, security or attention or resources and things like that, is like that we sort of can't necessarily. Um, it's hard to speculate what might be the thing to really be on the lookout because the whole idea is that these are holes that people are sort of, I guess, security gaps that people aren't necessarily aware of and are not are only exploited when someone realizes, for example, that, oh, a Zoom meeting code is only a nine character, uh, nine character string. And then you can sort of programmatically do that. So it's, it's, it's as, um, as things crop up, I think keeping in like just keeping in mind all potential ways to mitigate them as we um, have the sort of time and the resources to more slowly and conscientiously adopt the um, the different tools and infrastructures that uh, we are using to um, address to COVID nineteen life as. Uh, Anthony and Stephen, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Anthony and Stephen both study at York University's School of Communication and Culture, and they are co-authors on a piece called Zoom Bombings, Disrupt Online Events with Racist and Misogynist Attacks. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.